Okay, if you would please turn to the Acts of the Apostles, chapter 13. Unlike normal, I will not be reading through the whole passage to begin with because of its length. I want to save that time. But we will read through and deal with every verse of this long passage this morning. Let's pray. Father, help me, I ask, by your wonderful grace and your mercy and your deep, deep desire to always glorify your name. Help me be a conduit of this passage, to be a conduit of Paul's first recorded sermon, that we would see it. We would see what is central. We would see what is clear about The only message, the only gospel that saves sinners who believe. Cause us this morning to not just see it with our minds, but to love it and to grasp it with our hearts to the glory of the only Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen and amen. And so what we have now before us in our journey through the Acts of the Apostles is Paul's first recorded sermon in the narrative of Acts. And in this sermon this morning, we see... Paul's worldview and his concise gospel shining through it. And and with that comes two huge foundational truths of all reality. First is that God's sovereignty over all the happenings of human history shine through what Paul is preaching. Throughout this sermon in this synagogue this morning, it is about God. God did this, God did that, God did the next thing, God did the next thing, and the next thing, and God is in control of human history. And secondly, and crucial for all of us Christians to grasp about this great salvation by which we are saved is that Everything that has been written about the history of Israel in the Old Testament was all leading up to the coming of Jesus in order to save sinners through his God-ordained death and resurrection. That's what this preaching of Paul is saying. Now, First, foremost, if you look down at that text, it's pretty long, but not really. I mean, you could read through the sermon in less than four minutes. Clearly, Luke is summarizing, and he gives us the bones of how Paul preached here in this town. And here's his three-point structure. And I'm not a three-point sermon guy, you guys know that, but there are three major points here, uh, or sections of Paul. First, is right there in verses 16 to 25, where he lays out the promises of God throughout history, leading up to the promised coming, who is Jesus, which throws him into his second major point in this sermon, and that's verses 26 to 37. Jesus of Nazareth is the fulfillment of those promises. And then that brings him to the last crucial section the response the message demands their response in that synagogue it demands your response today so first start with verse 13 through 15 Luke sets up the context for this sermon Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos 
Okay, remember Paul and Barnabas on the first missionary journey? They go to the island of Cyprus. They've worked their way through. They're in that town of Paphos, and now they leave. They get on a boat and sail to the mainland. Up above them, it's going to be in the region of Galatia. From Paphos, and they came to Perga, right there by the shore in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. That's Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. He quits. And that will come up later in Paul's narrative about John Mark. But they, Paul and Barnabas, went on from Perga and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So now they have traveled on foot a hundred miles inland and even going up because Antioch of Pisidia is about 3,600 feet in elevation. And there's robbers on the road, etc. But they made their way a hundred miles to this town. And then Luke tells us, and on Saturday, on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After the reading from the law and the prophets in that service, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them, the visitors, saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. Now, they most likely, maybe through having met Paul, how you doing? No, here's a rabbi. This guy's trained under Gamaliel. You guys got a, some sermon for us? Some encouragement? Feel free. So they let them speak. And by the end of what Paul had to say, they clearly were shocked. And so Paul begins with the scriptural promise of God throughout the Old Testament narrative. Look at verse 16. He first addresses them. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hand Preachers do that a lot. He said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. And so he addresses all the Jews that are there and all the God-fearing Gentiles that are there in this Sabbath synagogue service. And he begins with, they, with what they all know of the Scripture. The Old Testament narrative of God choosing people, His people. Throughout, God makes it very clear that He is sovereign the way Paul says what He's going to say in each point along the way. Verse 17. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. So Paul says, God, as you know, He chose Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Jacob's twelve sons. And they multiplied as they ended up in Egypt by the end of Genesis under one of the sons, Joseph. And there God caused them to grow. That's what He says. He made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. Of course, we know they ended up in horrific slavery in Egypt until hundreds of years later, God called Moses to deliver them. And then that's what Paul says at the end of verse 17. And with uplifted arm, God led them out of it, of Egypt. Paul's point, God did it. Not Moses. God did it. Verse 18, and for about 40 years, God put up with them in the wilderness. 40 years of wilderness wandering. So now, again, Luke summarizes the bones of what Paul's preaching, but notice what Paul did in the synagogue in the first recorded sermon. He has just worked his way through the first five books of the Bible. 
Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And then Paul continues to the next book of the Bible, Joshua, verses 19 and 20. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Now, again, yes, it's true that Joshua, their leader, was a general of the army and he led them into battle and that the people of Israel swung the swords, did the battle, but Paul said it was God who destroyed these seven nations in the land of Canaan. And that 450 years that Paul says refers to the 400 years in Egypt, the 40 years in the wilderness, and 10 years to conquer most of Canaan. And then Paul jumps to the next book of the Bible, the book of Judges, and then into the historical books of 1st and 2nd Samuel. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So then God gave them, when they're in the land, leaders for the next 200 years that were called judges. God would raise them up as they needed, like Othniel and Ehud and Shamgar and Barak and Deborah and Gideon and Jephthah and Samson and Samuel the prophet until the people cried for a king, which God interpreted as they reject me as king. So I'll give them a king, and he gives them their first king, Saul. So here's Paul. He lays out this history, and then Paul brings it all to its central figure in verses 22 and 23. And when God had removed him, Saul, as king, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse a man after my heart who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, just as He promised. Okay, just hold on. So then He goes... And he gets right to this significant figure which connects to Jesus, David. God raised up a young nobody who's tending sheep, who's pretty good with a slingshot, who loves to play his stringed instrument and write prayerful songs. God removes Saul. And he installed David as king. And Paul's point, it was all God's doing. And God promised in the scripture to David that I, God, will raise up from one of your descendants a king in order that that king will sit on the throne and he will reign not for 40 years. He will reign unendingly forever and ever. And this was the central hope of the Jews. Now Paul, you got a picture, he's in the synagogue in Antioch, a city up in this mountain region. And he says to them at that point, God did it. He's fulfilled it just as he promised. 
God has always been active at every point of history so that when Jesus did come, it would be absolutely clear through what has been written and recorded about God's acts that He's the one. Verse 23, so Paul says, of this man's offspring, of David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior. Jesus, just as He has promised. Then notice, Paul adds to the biblical history here. Verse 24 and 25. Before His coming, Jesus is coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. They all have heard of John. And as John was fulfilling his course, coming to the end of his ministry, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No. But behold, after me one is coming the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So, John the Baptist was clear. The one of whom Jesus said, no one born of women has been a greater prophet than John. And that prophet says, Jesus, the one coming after me, is the central figure of all human history. Paul is showing that Jesus Christ is the goal. He is the culmination of all history. He is the one around which everything coalesces. That's what he's saying. I mean, Paul writes that clearly later in Colossians 1 when he says it this way in verses 16 to 18 about Christ. For by Him, the Lord Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Christ and for Christ. And He, Jesus, is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He's the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. All of the Old Testament was written to point forward to Jesus. He fulfilled hundreds of prophecies, a few of which Paul will go on to cite in this sermon. And so here's Paul's first major section of his sermon. God mercifully through history, redemptive history, has promised and promised and promised a Redeemer, a Savior, a King. That he chose. And that king. That savior. Has come. He is Jesus. The one you've heard about. From Nazareth. And that brings Paul. To his second major section. To unfold the particulars. About Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 26. Brothers. And you can see the second section. He begins with a direct address. Brothers, my fellow Jews, Gentile God fears. Now again, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. That's a passive verb. Sent. The message has been sent. By whom? 
Again, it's his point throughout. God is acted. God planned it. God accomplished it in Jesus. And God right now, Paul is saying, as you hear my voice is sending to you the message. Paul knows that by now this is about 14 years after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. Throughout the Roman Empire, throughout all the cities where there are synagogues and there's Jewish populations, he knows all the Jews throughout the empire have heard of Jesus now. They've heard of John the Baptist. Of course. This sect, and he's got a bunch of followers. And so Paul anticipates they have two huge questions in their mind, and Paul means to address them. The first he knows that's going on with his fellow Jews is he will go through town after town preaching salvation in Jesus Christ. The first is this. Well, I mean, if, if Jesus is God's Savior, if He's the Messiah, if He is the promised Son of David who is to reign, then why did the leaders in Jerusalem reject Him? He's going to address it. And the second question is this. When they did reject Him and they handed Him over to be killed, did they somehow hinder or undo God's plan? Those are the questions he's addressing. And so, in answer to the first question, Paul says, they rejected him because, here's his answer, they did not recognize him when he came. They did not have eyes to see that it was He whom all the Scriptures were pointing to. And Paul says why they didn't. Because they misconstrued and misinterpreted the Scriptures, the prophets. They were looking for, for a political and a military Messiah who would, who would come and deliver them from the domination of Rome. This Messiah certainly would be trained up in, in, in the preeminent rabbinical schools like under Gamaliel, one of the other greats. He would come from a prominent family. And Jesus fulfilled none of that. He came from some backwoods little nowhere town up in Galilee called Nazareth as a blue-collar worker. Tradesman. Read what he says. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath. Okay, just stop for a moment. Look, we're all Jews. We know this. We keep Sabbath. We're synagogue goers. Every Sabbath, they heard the Scriptures read. The prophets read. They heard God's Word. They memorized great portions of God's Word. But they did not understand His Word. It's His point. That's why. They rejected him. Much like what Jesus said directly to the Jewish leadership, religious leadership, and he said it to their face in John 5 this way You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the scriptures. They bear witness about me. And you refuse to come to me that you may have life. 
And in Matthew 13, Jesus quoted Isaiah the prophet in reference to his fellow Jews, saying this. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, quote, You will indeed hear, but never understand. And you will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But no. And so in answer to the first question, why did the Jewish leadership in Jerusalem reject him? Because they were blind. Though they could memorize text of Scripture, they did not see what it was clearly saying because of their heart's condition. That's his answer. And in answer to the second question, Paul shows that their rejection of Jesus and their handing him over to be killed in no way undermined God's plan of salvation. But instead, they who put him to death sinfully and are accountable for it unwittingly fulfilled what the prophets foretold. That's his point. Look at verse 27 to 29. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize Him nor understand the utterances of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them, the prophets, by condemning Jesus. And though they found in Him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written in the Scripture about Jesus and his death, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. Now first notice how Paul in this sermon says essentially the same thing that the Apostle Peter said in his first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Here's how Peter said it in that first sermon in chapter 2, verse 23 of Acts. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. And then the early church in Acts chapter 4, remember they prayed this way, for truly in this city of Jerusalem there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, who? Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, all gathered against Jesus in order to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And that's what Paul's saying. God had a plan. The Jewish leadership, in their sin, carried out His plan to the T. And Paul drives home God's acting, therefore, throughout human history, even to the point of using the most wicked deeds of mankind in order to accomplish His sovereign purpose in the saving work of Jesus Christ. Paul says they read the Scripture, but they did not really understand the Scriptures. And so in their sin, they unwittingly fulfilled the Scriptures by putting Jesus to death. And all of it was God's doing. He is in control of history. And then, 
Paul hammers this home. Pick it up again in verse 29. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God. Wonderful words. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. Just imagine that building. The resurrection of Jesus is shocking. And it is central to the gospel. It is central to the message God has sent. And Paul backs it up with many eyewitnesses or roaming the earth today who touched him, who ate food with him, who were taught by the dead Jesus after he was raised to human immortality. That's what he's telling them. And then he goes on to support it now by quoting some Old Testament prophecies that Jesus fulfilled by being raised from the dead. Verse 32. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As also it is written in the second psalm, and he quotes verse 7 of it, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And you read Psalm 2. It is all about a prediction of the enthronement of the king. Of God's Messiah, the son of David, over all of his enemies. And so what Paul is saying, this refers to the resurrection and of course with it the ascension of Jesus to the right hand of God who reigns now with all power and all authority. And then Paul quotes Isaiah 55 verse 3 in order to show that Jesus' resurrection fulfilled that text. Verse 34. And as for the fact that God raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has spoken in this way, and he quotes Isaiah, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Okay. Now, God has promised to His people I will give to you, my people, all of you. That is a plural pronoun. The, the you doesn't refer to Jesus. The you refers to God's people. I will give to you all the sure, the sure blessings of David. And so Paul's point to his fellow Jews here is that that blessing that God promised they knew, and it's right there, the blessings of David was to come to them and to be mediated to them through the promised descendant of David. Why is that an argument for the resurrection? Because a dead Messiah cannot fulfill it. David's son would be in his lineage. He would be truly human. And Jesus, in His incarnation, the eternal God, became truly human. The descendant of David. And He was mortal. And thus killed. And then God raised Him. The human being. To human Immortality forever. 
And that's Paul's point to them. It's core of the gospel to Paul. This can only be fulfilled by one of David's descendants who will go on and on and on and on forever. Proof in Scripture, along with eyewitnesses, God has raised His Messiah from the dead. And then Paul cites Psalm 16 verse 10, the same psalm that Peter actually cites in his very first sermon on the day of Pentecost. Start with verse 35. And therefore he says also in another psalm, quote, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. That's it. And then Paul goes on to interpret it to them. For David, who wrote the psalm, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, he fell asleep. He died. And he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. He decomposed. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. David's son, Jesus. His whole point is, the psalm could not refer to David himself. It had to refer to his promised heir, who is Jesus of Nazareth. There's Paul's huge body, those first two major sections. And that leads Paul then to complete the gospel message with the bottom line. You must... Respond to what I have said. God has sent you the message. This is true for them in the synagogue and it's true in this room this morning. Their response, your response. Will you believe in Jesus and be saved? Or will you scoff and doubt God's promise and be judged? That's how Paul closes his evangelistic gospel message. Let's read his words, 38 to 41. So let it be known to you, therefore, brothers. Here it is again, direct address, his final point. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by Him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. Quote, Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. Like I, Paul, am telling it to you. There is nothing in this universe that is more important than the two promises that are offered here in the gospel that Paul preaches. The forgiveness of sins and justification before Almighty God. 
These promises, he says, they come through one man. The Lord Jesus Christ. And and like the Apostle Paul himself before he came to faith in Jesus, he knows his audience is much like he was. Constantly trying to do works of the law in order to gain acceptance with God. By doing the law. And it is anti-gospel. As Paul lays out clearly in his letter to the Romans, in his letter to the Galatians, when he just says so clearly that right standing with God, to be okay with God, the judge, to be in good stead with the law of God, who is God. This is called, in the New Testament, justification. Paul is so clear that that right standing with God can never ever, ever come to any of us sinners through our law doing. Cannot. Now, for a moment, for the life of me, I don't have a clue why the ESV committee decided to translate to kai'a'o, which is used twice, as freed instead of the way it is almost always translated in the New Testament to justify. It's the same word. This is the word that Paul throughout his letters and his epistles uses throughout to refer to something more than just forgiveness of sins. To be declared righteous. Here's another way to say the same thing. To be justified before God. It means that God declares that person to be righteous in His sight. Through the perfect human righteous life of another person. Jesus the Christ. We who believe in Jesus Christ, we stand before Him, the judge of the universe, not only absolutely forgiven of all of our sins, but as if we have lived our human life in perfect obedience, even though we haven't. Because He has taken the perfect obedience of the One, Jesus, and put it to the legal, judicial account of everyone who believes. That is what it is to be justified. He has imputed Christ's righteousness to every believer through their faith. That's what Paul's preaching. That is love. That is mercy. That is the gospel. The moment any of us sinners walking this earth, the very instant that we come alive to Him in the hearing of the gospel and believe, At that very moment, not only are all of our sins wiped away, not counted against us, because they have then been clearly shown to have been nailed 
to the cross of Jesus where he suffered the penalty for them, but also at that very moment, Jesus' sinful life is then and forever the grid through which our Creator will always see us in perfect righteousness. The very instant we come to genuine saving faith. Let me read Paul's words again. I'll translate those two Greek words the right way. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who believes is justified from everything from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. That's his message to them. And then he gives the warning. Beware. Therefore, you who have been privileged to hear what God has sent, beware. Lest what is said in the prophets should come about. And he quotes it. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish. For I, God, am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. And so Paul, he quotes Habakkuk the prophet, chapter 1, verse 5, which in its context was a clear warning to the nation of Judah of God's judgment that was going to come upon them because of their unrepentant heart. And so Paul's point is clear in quoting Habakkuk 1.5. He is saying, and they hear what he's saying. Trust me, many of them do. You're going to see how angry they will, many of them will get who do not believe. Paul is clearly saying, just as God surely carried out that promise of judgment in the Babylonian captivity, in Babylon coming and destroying Jerusalem and the temple and carrying off the Jews into exile. Just as sure as God after that prophecy brought that judgment, so He will bring destruction on you if you scoff. If you scoff, look away, take lightly His gracious promise of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. The one true creator God, as Paul has shown throughout this sermon, he is the God who is faithful. He is the God who keeps his promises. And he is also the God who carries through with his warnings. Paul's sermon gives plenty of evidence that God has faithfully kept His gracious promises to send the Savior, to send the King, to send the Messiah, the Son of David, who is Jesus of Nazareth, in order to save everybody who believes. In verse 26, His voice rang out in the synagogue, the message of this salvation is sent to you. In verse 38, through Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Verse 39, 
Through Him, everyone who believes is justified in God's sight. But also, all who scoff at Christ and ignore Him, as Paul clearly says in 1 Thessalonians, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His power. Paul's plea, my plea, is if you have not come to Him who said, all you who are heavy laden and burdened and want rest, for your souls come unto me. For my yoke is easy. My burden is light. The plea is simple. Believe this gospel. Let's pray. Holy Father, we ask for the power of your mercy to make believers. As those of us who have so mercifully by your hand come to you because you first called us. Cause the heart of any who do not know you this morning. To not just hear the call of Paul the preacher in the synagogue. Or of me the preacher in this pulpit. But let them hear through it. Your effectual. Life changing. Eternity. Altering. To the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. And amen.